Hey folks, welcome to the Agency Freedom Podcast. We take our listeners from captive to Andy to market domination. Welcome to episode 49. My guest for this episode is Mr. Aaron Gordon. He and I have a great conversation about personal branding, social media presence, and discuss the whole ball of wax that is being a second generation insurance professional. You know, so many of us get into the game completely by accident. Uh, Aaron is not one of those people, uh, whether it's uh, Aaron or Ryan Keating or Hal Soden or David Carruthers or anyone else uh, who is a second generation insurance professional. Um, it's a, just a whole different ballgame, being born and raised uh, in the nuance uh, and, and seeing what entrepreneurial life is in the industry. I really enjoyed our conversation. Uh, at the end of the conversation, we get into some uh, more personal topics uh, of, of culture and ethnicity and, and religion as it relates to the professional existence that all of us uh, are pursuing. And I think that's a great addition uh, to the overall uh, narrative of what we're doing here at AFP. So a couple of housekeeping items, go ahead and subscribe to AFP on the platform of your choice. Drop us a review if you would be so kind, if you get something useful out of it. And most importantly, share Agency Freedom Podcast with someone in your circle who needs the value that we are delivering. We are free, 100% zero cost, and we always will be on this podcast. The content is delivered uh, with no reservation. We're not holding the good stuff back at all. So sit back, relax. Uh, If you're driving, don't relax too much. Uh, Keep your eyes on the road and enjoy episode 49 with Mr. Aaron Gordon. This is the Agency Freedom Podcast. Let's go. There are two kinds of people in the insurance industry, those who are captive and those who are free. This is the Agency Freedom Podcast. There is so much I wish I would have known before I made the freedom jump to the independent side. I mean, even now, I feel like I'm learning something new every single month. We're all about helping insurance agency owners and sales professionals reach your maximum potential and flex your freedom. My team and I replaced six years of captive agency revenue in 17 months with Riskwell. 17 months, man. It's crazy. This show is where I share our successes, our failures, and what I've learned along the way. We lay out a blueprint of how to make your freedom jump from captive to indie to market domination. I'm bringing you colleagues from markets across the country with dozens of different specialties. They're eager to share their stories and best practices with you. I'm your host, James Jenkins. Welcome to Agency Freedom Podcast. Let's go. All right, so this is another one of those episodes where I have absolutely no idea where this is going uh, and and what exactly the topic is going to be. But my guest for this episode is none other than Mr. Aaron Gordon. Uh, He is, I don't know what his exact title is, but he is in a family agency, the Gordon Companies. Uh, He is in the big city, the biggest city, New York, New York. So uh, Aaron, welcome to uh, the show, man. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. And I, I got to say, uh, you are the epitome of agents doing cool things. Uh, I see you everywhere. You've done an excellent job of branding yourself. Uh, your, your approach 
uh, is self-promotional in the best way. I love your personal brand and, and way you put yourself out there on LinkedIn. Your social game is really strong. Uh, I think a lot of us uh, can learn from your approach. And honestly, I have no idea what we're going to talk about other than just what you're up to and how you're doing it and you know any best practices or tips or stories or lessons learned you want to share with us, man. So um, I'm just going to jump right in and hand you the microphone and say, Let's hey, tell it. us who Aaron Gordon is. What's going on, man? What you up to? So I am Aaron Gordon of the Gordon Companies, as you mentioned. From the, uh, I appreciate that you say the biggest city because a lot of people don't give us the recognition that we uh, that we so deserve here in New York City. Yeah, man, uh, the biggest and the best. So sixteen um, was, million people in your metro area—that's a that's lot. Right. That's, that's right. more than um, double Dallas, the so entire yeah, DFW area, two of them. And so it's great. It's a great place to be in business. Um, I, as you mentioned, I represent the second generation in our family-owned and operated independent agency. My father started our firm back in uh, December of 1968, still in the office every single day. Mm. My mother came on in 83 and kind of runs the agency. And I am the one of their children that decided to to do this. Um, I am doing things a little bit my own way, as you mentioned, that I'm sure we'll get into. But really just uh, a proud father of four, a proud husband, and a guy who didn't used to believe in the independent agency channel. I'll be totally honest. Uh, you know, you get as as you said, I'm from New York, so I kind of say it as directly and as straight as I can. So I didn't believe in it when I started because I just thought my parents were crazy. Mm. But every day that passes and every person that I meet, I'm more confident and bullish on the industry. Maybe not the way things are done or were done, but the health of the career choice since I have no plan B. You know, that really is a very important nugget that you slipped in right there at the end. You don't have a plan B. Uh, as uh, as my previous guest, uh, Eric Scholey, uh put so eloquently, burn the ships, uh, be all in. It, it makes it a lot easier to be successful when you don't have any other choice but to be successful. For sure. And it's funny you say that because a lot of people, uh, I forgot who said this to me originally, so I wish I could give the credit where it's due, but very profoundly someone said to me that insurance is the number one second career. In America, <laughs> yeah, like oh, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a successful or mid-level salesperson, and I see the insurance guy is playing golf every day, so I'll go do insurance. Or it, insurance can't be that difficult because Joe's doing it or Bob's doing it, so I'll do it as a second career. But very few people who are not in the family channel mm -hmm. um, come out and say this. And even the people, by the way, in the family side of the business, I have, I've yet to meet many people who are like me that said when they were 15 years old. That this was what they were going to make into a career, which probably means I'm crazy and stupid at the same time. But, mm. you know, there is something to the no plan B. Well, the perspective of someone who grew up surrounded by the insurance world. I mean, last time I checked, you weren't alive in 1968 unless you just have an amazing skincare regimen. Uh, so <laughs> I, I can only assume Correct. that you don't know anything other than the insurance world because you literally were born and raised inside of it. So but, you, you and have a really different perspective. And what's interesting about that is a lot of people, when they grow up with dinner table talk, and maybe my siblings are in this category, and I'm not, I'm not saying what's better or worse, but a lot of people, when they grow up with a dinner table conversation, they actually don't want to go into that. Uh, I think there's something in the religious community called like uh, uh, pastoral syn syndrome or something like that, where mm -hmm. the, the kids of pastors and rabbis and priests don't end up, you know, wanting to go into that field because they kind of see 
all ends of it. For me, uh, I, I grew up with it. I grew up with some of the clients that we have today were names and that we heard at the table. I tell people that my brothers can probably rattle off more insurance knowledge than the average agent because that's just what we grew up in. Uh, but the funny part of that is that my mother, my mother's parents, my grandparents had a business together as well. And, uh, wow, gosh, it's over 20 years ago now when my grand, when my grandmother passed away, unfortunately, um, my uncle said something very profound at her funeral. And he said, one of the lessons I learned from my parents is never to learn, never to work with your spouse. And he's like, obviously my sister didn't learn that message because she was working, you know, with her spouse, my father. But I can tell you one lesson that I learned from my parents, never work with your spouse. That I learned. So my wife and I, my, have never had a conversation about her working in the business, but my perspective is that you're right. I don't know anything else. And I believe that it's a noble and honorable profession. I really do. I believe yeah. it's a decent one. Hard to become a billionaire. Hard to become a billionaire. It's not hedge funds. It's not stocks. It's not investments in that way. And it's not tech like that. Mm -hmm. But also really easy not to be broke. Yeah. So no, and of, you, you know, make an excellent point there because... Honestly, I never really thought of or aspired to billionaire status. I, I just not something that's in my head. Uh, but you're right. It is probably very, very difficult to ever be a billionaire in the insurance world unless you're just one of those, you know, right place, right time people that launches a truly transformational idea and blows up in value and, you know, goes public or gets bought by Aon or whatever. Uh, but yeah, it's, if you do it right, it's really easy over the span of years to become uh, very well off uh, and be certainly be a multi multi-millionaire that's that's pretty straightforward and also, by the way at the same time have a great work-life balance right so usually there's a direct relationship between the hours mm -hmm. and the brain power that you have to put in and the, your income or your yeah. ability to climb the ladder not that i think that insurance is no work and i think that that's where we get a bad rap mm -hmm. i mean anyone who i've met who's hustling and doing things like you or i are doing they're working hard, yeah. but you don't have to work every single weekend and every single night, like yeah. if you're fresh out of law school or fresh into finance. Well, and the beauty of building a team and being part of a high quality, high caliber, high performance team, like I see that you are, I certainly am, and you know, trying to build something special here. I don't have the benefit of being second generation, so I, I'm creating a lot of the structure out of thin air and you know, with the help of advisors and mentors and whatnot, but... The, the beauty is there's other people who are rowing the boat at the same time that you are. 100%. And by the way, I think that there's a lot of advantages to that as well. I think oh, that, yeah. Yeah. you know, I, I, I am lucky enough that there was a book of business here before me mm -hmm. that allowed me to mess things up or try a couple of things. Mm -hmm. For lack of a better term, like I didn't have to worry about how we were going to pay the office rent mm -hmm. in the beginning. Yeah. But I think that, and I talk about this all the time, I think that there's something envious about looking at a business and building your structure, your operations, your processes, your tech, forming your ideal client, by the way, based on solely your vision. For me, a lot of the things that I do are clouded, for lack of a better term, by our already ideal client, our already existing client. Mm -hmm. And maybe if I took a step back, I would say, the client that I thought was ideal for this business for 50 years, maybe that's not the ideal client anymore, but I, I kind of am, I'm, I'm, I'm in that quicksand for lack of a better term. Yeah. And so it's not, that's not a bad thing, 
But I just think that the perspective of Scratch is something that it's incredible. Yeah, and it's fascinating for me to be in this conversation with you, Aaron, because I mean, full transparency for you freedom jumpers out there, Aaron and I have literally never spoken a word face to face or even, you know, been on a one on one conversation before today. We've had LinkedIn messages and been connected from afar on social media. That is the sum total of our direct interaction. So I know absolutely nothing about you, my friend, Uh, but I can say from what I've seen, the structure and the way that you guys operate is basically 180 degrees from everything that I've been doing. You know, the the scrappy upstart, the, you know, policy zero uh, coming up on three years ago. April 1st is our third anniversary. And, you know, you already said that you, you guys have been around 53 years, if my math is correct. That is the exact definition of a, a legacy agency, which, you know, a lot of times the word legacy uh, in this environment is thrown around as a negative. You know, the, the legacy carriers and, and whatnot compared to newer emerging, you know, insure tech digitally focused carriers. When I say legacy in this sense, I just mean an extremely well-established family agency that has, I, I would imagine, lots of pros and, and lots of cons, uh, depending on what context we're talking about. Before this, this conversation is over, I would really like to hear your perspective on, on the pros and cons of, of being a generational agency. You know, some of our, I would imagine our mutual colleagues, you know, Hal Soden and Ryan Keating and others are also second generation uh, participants and love to get your take on that before, uh, before we wrap this thing. But uh, some more background uh, on you. Um, you said 15 is when you basically decided uh, more or less that this was what you wanted to do for your career. How did that come about? Because for a lot of people that are, are listening, uh, we may not be second generation uh, participants, but a lot of us probably would aspire that someday our kids would want to be interested uh, in, in continuing the family business. So walk me through if you can, I don't know exactly how old you are, but it seems like you and I are at fairly similar stage in life. So, you know, 15 was probably, you know, 20, 25, 30 years ago for you. Uh, you know, walk me through what that process was like when you said, hey, you know what? I've been around this my whole life. And yes, I do think I want to do that for my career. Well, what was that like? So first of all, I'm 34. So you were pretty, that's pretty close. Cool. We'll take okay. it. It's always um, a dangerous assumption when you're yeah, like it's guessing it's someone's age. There's a little age. gray in my beard, so we'll take it. But, yeah. um, <laughs> you know, it's it's funny how, how it happened. So one of the one of the advantages, and this is, I, I think, the number one reason why we've been successful so far and why I chose this is the stage in which my parents saw their careers when I came into the business. So I think it's very hard to have two or three, but let's just say generation the CEO generation and the new generation that's coming in, so that G2, um, both having long-term growth aspirations and wanted to do things their way. What I mean to say is when I came into the business, so my father, thank God, is uh, is almost 82 now. So I was born when he was almost 50. Uh, I don't disclose my mother's age, but they're in, they're in a similar age bracket. Smart not, man. Uh, not the same age. Um, and so when I came into the business, being the youngest of their children. I'm four years older than my identical twin brother, but we were the youngest. They they were they had one eye on legacy. That doesn't mean that they didn't care about the business or growing the business or the financial gains that they were seeing and would see from the business. But they were able to kind of take a step back and say, 
how do we perpetuate this? And I think about it all the time because I have four kids. I also have nieces and nephews who I would love for someone to come into this business. And so to answer your question directly, I was 15 years old. Uh, I wanted a summer job. I had been working in Coldstone Creamery, which I loved, but I kind of wanted to get a taste of corporate America and uh, I couldn't find anyone to hire me. All my friends, parents or whatever were doing different things. A lot of people were doing things summer camp. I had a break before I was going to go to basketball camp. And uh, so I said to my parents, hey, can I come in and just, I'd love to see what's going on. Uh, they offered to pay me a little bit, which was great. Also, uh, I'll never forget when my mother handed me my first paycheck. It was kind of like the best allowance I ever got in my life. Um, <laughs> and and what I learned then, which I think hopefully kids are learning younger now because it's something that's talked about, but you know, 15, 16, 17, 20 years ago, it wasn't talked about was my parents had the world's best work-life balance. Mm. And so when I started to look at and I saw what they did every day, I watched my mother, I watched my father. It wasn't always pleasant, but they got to talk to people. They got to help people. And there was stress, but it wasn't, I, I didn't see them screaming on the phone or huddled over spreadsheets or sitting in the boardroom, banging on the table, trying to figure out how to make it work. And I also realized that I had a pretty good life. I found out later when I graduated from high school or towards the later years of high school, uh, I realized that there were people in the school that I attended whose parents were very, very, very well off. And there were people whose families weren't as well off. So I never flew first class in my life. I've still never flown first class basically in my life. Never flown private. Don't have a driver. Don't have a private chef. And as you said, I don't have aspirations for those things. But then I took a step back and I said, my father's basically having fun every day. And he got to give us and he gives his grandchildren. At the time, he had fewer grandchildren. Now he has 15. Really good lives and fun. He's 82 years old and he comes in every single day because he loves it. Mm. And when the phone rings, there are certain people that he speaks to quarterly and he will never miss those lunches and dinners and meetings. By the way, very profitable for our agency. He's still the most profitable producer. And I saw my mother on the more management side. She got to talk to people. Most of her clients were friends and most of her friends were clients. Mm. And if you do it right and you sell the right products, you usually don't have to have very difficult conversations with people. You can just help them. Yep. So I said, hey, my name's on the door. Uh, I didn't realize how hard it was going to be. I didn't realize how tough my parents would be on me, and I'm very grateful that they were. Um, and then once I was serious about it, my parents sat me down and said, here's how it's going to go. You don't touch a phone. You don't touch a computer. The phone I was allowed to touch if it was ringing off the hook and someone needed an answer. And you'll sit with our personal lines team. You'll sit with our commercial lines team. And every single day at 4 o'clock, we're going to close that door. And my father lectured me on the history of insurance. And I happen to be in my home office today. But if I was in my midtown New York office, I would show you that probably my most valued possession uh, is the notebook that I have from those 4 o'clock lectures. Most of the information was, was and is completely useless mm. um, to some. But to me, it was extremely valuable. And we've we figured it out. The first five years were tough. And I would say that to any parent who has a kid in the family business or any uh, or any you know anyone who's training the next generation, it's tough. But when you also figure out the lanes, and I'm sure we'll get more into that, but like mm -hmm. once we figured it out, it's the last five or six years have been amazing. And we've seen the growth. So it's awesome. I don't know if this is any use to you. What you said just a second ago really triggered me to pick this up off the table behind me. Have you ever read this book? Underwriters of the United States? Not only did I read it, but I bought it for my father for Hanukkah. Okay. 
Well, there you go. Uh, Tyler Asher, uh, president of distribution uh, for Liberty, uh, was kind enough to recommend that to me. And I find it to be terribly interesting. I, I think that a lot of people who get into our industry lose sight of the history. So they come into the industry, they view it as this tech play and they're going to sell and whatever. But the insurance industry is it's pretty cool. Like if you go to Lloyd's and you take a visit there, it it gets a bad rap. Yeah. It's not Apple, it's not Google, it's not Meta or Facebook, whatever they're calling it now. You know, But it it's a pretty cool thing to say that we've kind of been doing the same thing just in different variations for hundreds of years. Yep. And by the way, this country and the world and the whole economic system wouldn't exist if it wasn't for insurance. So, yeah. and by the way, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't own my home if it wasn't for insurance either yeah. in terms of the structure and the ability to you know secure assets and things like that. So, Well, it is the foundation of civilized society because it, it allows everyone to take a certain amount of risk uh, and not lose their head, whether it's personal or business. And yeah, I mean, to wax philosophical for a second, it is without question the single most important uh, industry for the entirety of, of society, even supporting other obviously very, very important industries like healthcare and education and finance and other, you know, table leg industries, uh, to use uh, an analogy that a lot of people are familiar with. You know, if it weren't for insurance, your doctor would be scared to ever make a diagnosis. If it weren't for insurance, the engineers and architects and home builders and manufacturers would be terrified to do anything because of the financial liability of, of doing anything professional. And no, and no investment arm would ever feel comfortable making an investment in another yeah. in startup. So you wouldn't have... All of your investment uh, money is at risk because nothing is protected. Exactly. Oh, man. You and I could go on and on about that, I am sure. Uh, but yeah, anyways, I'll, I'll put the, uh, the link in the, the show notes, folks, if you want to, to pick up a copy of Underwriters of the United States. If you are a history buff and if you are a, a nerd for this industry like I am and apparently like my new friend Aaron is, I can almost guarantee you're going to enjoy that read. Um, so, Aaron, I want to put put it back to you, and you you did allude to what my you know, next question was going to be. Um, the structure of things in your office, you know, when I talk to other multi generational offices, uh, when I when I ask them questions about you know how is it set up, you know, where are the decision making trees aligned so that you don't have you know family members butting heads with each other, like no, this is my territory, I'm deciding this, you know, and being able to operate as you know, a collaboration as a, as a, a cohesive unit with, without, you know, getting in each other's way. Can you talk about that? Like how, how your experience has been in your agency? Sure. So I think the answer is twofold. I think first and foremost, the second generation or the next generation has to really value and respect what came before them. So what I, what I like to say in family businesses, the, everyone knows, and the famous line is that the jersey, the name on the front of the jersey is more important than the name on the back of the jersey. Yeah. To borrow a sports analogy, I like to say the name on the front of the jersey is more important than the name on the back of the jersey, especially when they're the same. Because it, you can't come in and turn things upside down. So you have to build that trust. And then I think for the, for the principal or for that first generation, if you're if you've been working with your kid and you are looking for that legacy and you think that it's going to work, at a certain point, you have to trust them. Because unlike anyone else, if you can't trust your kid, you're never going to trust them in business. There's no way. And I would say that 
you should probably be working on your relationship and your kid never should have come into your business. But what worked for us was once I was able to show my parents that I was serious about it and I studied and I got my license and I did all the continuing ed and I was geeking out the way they thought I would and I took care of the clients and I think they they saw that passion in me. We kind of came to what was an under was an unwritten understanding and then we kind of shook hands on the deal, which was I won't mess with your boat if you don't mess with mine. And what I mean to say is obviously I interact with their clients the way they want to and I we answer the phone and we talk on the phone and I've picked up checks and people drop off checks and do all that kind of stuff to get, you know, down to a simplistic example. But they also understand that if I didn't engage via text message with my clients and my contemporaries, that I wouldn't have a business to pay my bills in the future. So as long as I don't break the law, which I don't, and one of the things that you alluded to, which I recommend everyone do, is we kind of operate somewhat separate silos, especially when it comes to super modern things like social media. Mm-hmm. So we have the Gordon Company social media, which didn't exist. And the reason why I rolled it out was that is everything that Gordon Company stands for. It's very informative. Uh, people like you or I would call it stale, but it's the legacy foundational reputation of the Gordon Companies that my parents have built over the last 50 years that I'm trying to continue to build. And then there's this Aaron Gordon guy, NY Risk Advisor. That's what my license plates are. That's what my QR codes are. That's what my hashtags are. That's what my handles are. And that's where where I try to allow my personality to come through. Now, obviously, in order for me to do that, my parents had to have faith that I wasn't going to do something crazy or go off the rails on social media. But that's the lines have to be delineated. The challenge, um, and I'm not sure we figured it out totally yet, is when a business is used to the principles doing everything, people in our generation are wired differently. Yeah. So my mother and I have this ongoing conversation, and if I was in my office, I would tell you that my father's office is directly to my left and my mother's office is directly to my right and mine is in the middle. So whatever, that's for another time. But we we all know that our operating account checks are handwritten by my mother because that's her shtick. And I'm not saying that she's doing anything wrong and I'm very happy because I have someone who's running the books of our business and she's been doing it successfully for the last 30 plus years and I think that she does an amazing job at that. But the day that she wants to stop doing that, a computer is going to manage that account. Yep. Like the, our, our monthly recurring non-changing expenses will be on auto pay. It just doesn't make sense for me to have, I can't wrap my, my brain around that not being the case. Yeah, no, me either. Obviously, you and I are very similar in age. We come from the same generation. And you and I have similar expectations for technology and the use and the utility and the, the purpose of technology. But that doesn't mean, by the way, that, that the way that she does it is wrong. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. if, I, if I went at it that way, we wouldn't be doing this 11 and a half years later. Yeah. I'm just saying they understand that I need a website. They understand that we have social media, the mm-hmm. text messaging, online payments, e-signature, all that jazz has got to happen even if their clients don't want to adapt to it. So so you basically have a bifurcated system where there's two seemingly completely separate agencies operating under one roof. Exactly. So, and, do- and, but, but there also has to be a respect to, for their clientele, right? I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not forcing, because those, those that's the core of the business. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, a 1A and a 1B for lack of, you know. Makes sense. Transition. You know, so 1968, obviously personal computers weren't a thing. 
Uh, that didn't really happen until the late 70s at the earliest. And even then, it wasn't mass marketed until probably the mid 90s at the earliest. So, you know, when we talk about, I mean, so many of these other conversations we've had on this podcast are talking about various forms of technology and, and implementation of all these strategies on automation and efficiency and workflow, yada, yada, yada. That's really hard to integrate when we're dealing with one analog system and one digital system. How, how has that process been over the years in your experience? And, and I guess, where do we go from here? At, at what point are you going to be able to, you know, bring the rest of the agency up to speed? And talk about that for a second, just bridging those two completely different ways of doing business. So first of all, I love automation. We love technology. And one of the things that I would say to anyone out there who's thinking about it, and I have an aging client base, you will be shocked at who will actually enjoy it and engage with it and prefer digital and the things that you think are gimmicky. Um, we had a newsletter. We put out our first newsletter for like our 51st anniversary. And I just ripped our client list and sent it out to everyone. And the responses were overwhelmingly positive. Very few unsubscribes. And that older clientele loved it because they said, oh, they actually, first of all, they actually read these emails, unlike the millennials and the, you know, post millennials. Mm -hmm. So it's, the way we're merging the systems are, first of all, everything is computerized unless you don't want it to be. So we have an agency management system. We were paper. We were paper until 2015, which will knock some people's you know socks off. And so what I've yep. done is we merged the accounting and done that. Um, it, what what has what remains analog is customer engagement. So I I like to say that we meet people where they want to be met. It is striking to me how many of the people that I thought wouldn't like technology are using text messages and are asking for us to send them their documents only digitally. Mm -hmm. uh, but we do have we have a client that asked me to mail their policy and it was 15 blocks from the office. So I said, instead, I'll just hand deliver it. So we do we still print some stuff. We just don't store it in our office, but we still print. Mm -hmm. um, I'll, I'll tell you a good a good segue story. So our longest running client uh, really showed me what family adaptation was. They were originally in the ice business, delivering ice for ice boxes in New York City. Mm. Uh, then they, when that kind of went away, they were in the home heating coal business. Uh, and now they're in the home heating oil business and gas boiler service business because heating oil is going out of vogue. So we're now dealing with our fifth generation there. My father, this is the company that, that he started uh, our agency with. And so the first year that we rolled our agency management system, I showed my mother how you handle monthly installments, how you can have it automatically generate the invoice and print it. And then you could have the, you know, all that stuff kind of go through, or you can generate all the invoices in advance and send them kind of like a coupon book for the client to tick off their monthly payments. And I was so excited. She said, this is amazing. We're going to track our receivables and track our overdue payments and all that kind of stuff. And she was all on board with it. So we email the client the uh, the first invoice and ask them if they want all the invoices, they want us to send them monthly. And the immediate response was, this is amazing. Thank you so much. This is going to help me out. But does that mean that I'm not going to get the 10 pre-stamped return little yellow envelopes that I used to put the check in to send okay. them back? <laughs> so so my oh, mother and I man. got a good laugh. And it's, it's one of our larger clients. So I obviously, I said, no, no, actually, I'm going to take one envelope today. I'm going to put 11 of those. I'm going to pre-post them for you and I'm going to send them to you right now. Um, and now they, by the way, five years, six years later, they pay online. But 
it was, I was like, you know, there's certain things that technology can't replace and certain things that people are just used to and the way that they're used to seeing you. Yep. I think the other thing in this conversation is, and anyone I think who engages with, with outside vendors will feel this. If you have a vendor that you've been working with forever and all of a sudden they make this huge shift, like the principal disappears one day or they tell you that their name is going to change or any of these stuff, a lot of people get kind of weirded out. They get spooked. Yep. And that impacts your retention. So one of the things that, that I've been very conscious of is as part of a transition, we're not spooking anyone. Yeah. So my my parents are still involved and they will always be involved and I hope that they never retire. But as my father is 81 years old and my mother is whatever age she is, we're introducing me and the next generation because we don't want people to say they have no plan. But at the same time, we're not rebranding and sending them a payment token and a Bitcoin because a lot of our core business would get spooked by that. Yeah. So I don't want to, even though even though they we've made the changes behind the scenes, I don't want to spook the customer experience to then lose that consistent because that's the bread and butter of PNC, right? Renewals. Hey, Freedom Jumper. Are you looking to take your business to the next level? Who is it, right? Write more business and see your agency succeed with NBS. At Nationwide Brokerage Solutions, they understand the challenges local agents face in the constantly changing marketplace. That's why they offer a wide array of personal and commercial markets and policy options to help you meet the needs of your customers, no matter how unique or outlandish they may be. With a team of experienced and dedicated professionals that provide you with the support and guidance you need to see your agency succeed, Nationwide Brokerage Solutions is here to support you every step of the way. Don't just survive in the competitive insurance industry. Thrive with Nationwide Brokerage Solutions. Get started today. Learn more at nbsbrokerage.com. Just so I'm clear, are you accepting payment via Bitcoin? No, not yet. <laughs> I was we'll supposed to say. We'll get Ooh. there. Oh, man. We'll get there. Um, we've That's an about entirely it. separate conversation. Issue, but yeah, yeah. Um, we've thought about it. And I have, you know, there are people in the industry that are, but... Like imagine if I sent people yeah. instead of a holiday gift, I sent an eighty-year-old client who's been doing with business for, with us for twenty-five years an NFT. Yeah, they, right. The, even if we've never sent them a holiday gift before, they would be like, "What is this? And who's this weirdo that thinks that I care about an NFT? I'm getting out of here." What is and fungible? We get business mean? like that every day. Yeah, I don't know what fungible is. It sounds like a scam. Right. <laughs> right. And by the way, we get a lot of business. You talk about the freedom jumpers, right? Yeah. We get a lot of business from agencies that sell and their clients don't want to be in an 800 number. They yeah. want the freedom jumper. They want that CSR that they've worked with or that producer that they've worked with forever. Yeah. And so they call us because non-compete issues or whatever, and they find us online and they say, oh my gosh, Gordon, and you answer the phone, like you're Gordon from Gordon. Not that I'm anything special, but there's actually a human there. Yeah. And that's an easy AOR every single time Yeah. from the big guys. Yeah, and that, I mean, you go back to value offering in the marketplace. That really is where Riskwell has made our bed. And we've stated publicly, like, that is our sweet spot. The stuff that's too big or too complicated or just needs more of an expert touch than the random generic account that can probably be well-serviced at any retail agency that's, you know, reasonably competent. We want to be north of the tiny local office 
but south of the big national shop that has a lot more resources than we do for, you know, in-house claims management, loss control services, et cetera, et cetera. You know, between those two, which is, I think, exactly what you just described. You know, somebody who's, you know, and big by enough. The UB- to- go ahead. Sorry. Go, no, go ahead. I was just like, between those two, you know, someone who cares about value and is not just only shopping for what's the cheapest thing I can get, but the same kind of profile, you know, that's not necessarily going to be on the radar of a Marsh or an Aon or Gallagher or whatever. Because, you know, as much as I might like to say and thump my chest, oh, I can compete with anybody. No, I can't. The reality is a lot of these shops have, you know, massive human resource that we simply don't have. We have eight people at risk well. So, you know, if I'm going up against a shop with a hundred million in revenue and, you know, 4,000 employees, well, okay, I'm probably going to have to find some advantage there. Otherwise I'm going to get smoked. Well, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you the two reasons why I think you're better off and I'm better off also yeah. with an agency. There's a people. lot of reasons, my friend. <laughs> uh, one is, one is, uh, I was at a charity event with the senior vice president of one of our carriers once, and we do a lot of business with them. And at the end, when they got to the raffle, the uh, the representative from the carrier that was running, from the agent, sorry, the public agent that was running the uh, the program, got up and invited the CFO of a major airline to raffle off the grand prize, which was a four-day, you know, four-night, five-day, all-expenses-paid vacation via their airline and their hotel partners. And he mentioned, this is our partner so-and-so airline and the CFO. And I looked at this guy and I said, man, would it be awesome to have that account? And he looked me right in the face and he goes, you would hate having that account. They don't make nearly as much as you think they make off of it. And the infrastructure that you need to manage a major public airline is not a headache that you're interested in for the revenue that you wouldn't make. So that's what I would say. That's number one. And number two is, uh, what strikes me more and more every day, and it keeps just trending up, is when you define that middle that you pointed out, the big guys who you said we can't compete with, they keep their floor keeps getting higher and higher and higher. So what used to be 25,000 in revenue was the minimum to get in their door, then it became 50, now it's 100, then it's 150. And I would venture to say, just because we've spoken for long enough at this point, that $100,000 in revenue is a nice account for both you and I. So Yeah, absolutely. Revenue. So, yeah. And, and they won't even touch something that's below 150. And who knows, next year it might be 200. So yeah. I'll take that 50 to 150 revenue every single day over the million in revenue that every single second I know they're getting a, a, a blurb a call, a text, an offer to go to a suite at the Yankee game or fly on a private jet from Marsh Willis, Ann Gallagher, you make your pick. Yep. Like I'm okay with my clients who are loyal and having those. It's all about driving that unfair advantage, right? You know, going back to what you said a little bit ago, you know, I don't think either one of us or maybe anybody uh, listening to this really wants to be a billionaire. Because at the end of the day, if you're going to have a B at your net worth, you're going to be sacrificing a lot. And, you know, it's not that hard to grow your net worth. The question just becomes, what are you willing to sacrifice and give up so that you can chase net worth? And I know just from what I've heard from you, you're not willing to sacrifice everything so you can have professional success. 
Uh, you're not going to put your family on the altar. You're not going to put, you know, a, a hobby or your mental health or your sanity uh, or your your close personal relationships. You're not going to put any of those things on the altar of pers- you know, professional success. And that speaks a lot to your character, but also the way that you approach the game. That's not to say anything against Willis and Aeon and all the big players. You know, they didn't get that way in one generation or two or three. Like most of those offices have been around for a very, very long time. And they have hundreds, if not thousands of people rowing the boat in the same direction. So uh, it's definitely different strokes for different folks. And I think it's it's really a totally different industry, you know, like, yeah. and not, that's not, and I'm, um, I, as I said, I think that you can be so successful and that doesn't mean I don't work hard. You know, people are shocked at sometimes the hours that I answer the phone or that I answer emails or things like that. And my response is, if I'm busy, if I'm putting my kid to sleep, if I'm doing homework with my kid, yeah, I'm not going to respond to you then. But there's if I'm sitting in my bed rather than scrolling whatever social media platform and you email me with an urgent matter, I can pick up the phone and call you. And mm-hmm. by the way, if I don't want to. And another one, everyone has my cell phone number. Everyone. It's in my email signature. And sometimes people say, I can't believe you answered. And my response is, if I didn't want to answer or I couldn't answer... I wouldn't. Yeah. So you have to be dedicated, right? When there's a storm and we had when we had Superstorm Ida here and we had tens of clients that were underwater, I didn't get in my bed for two days because I literally was driving from client to client because that's what I believe in, as many of them as I could get to. And I was answering the phone and I was handling with the adjusters and things like that. So that doesn't mean that there's no work. And when we have deadlines, there is pressure. But there's no reason why you have to miss a, a kid's soccer game. Like literally no reason. Yep. No, I, I could not agree more. So I'm going to pivot real quick and, and head in a completely different direction because I think that, that part oh. of the conversation I think has, has found a good resting place. Your social media game is very, very strong. Um, you put out a lot it. of content. Uh, it is, it's good content. And it's, there's a variety too. You've got some long form. You've got some short form. I see you're doing you know, some reels. You're, you're, I'm not on TikTok, but you seem like the kind of guy who's probably on TikTok. Uh, I'm not. With, with, oh, you're not. I made a bad assumption. I'm not. Some of, some of your content just strikes me as being TikTok appropriate. I should uh, be. I should be. I just haven't. I just haven't done it yet. But I should be. Well, we're both chasing our, our friend and colleague, Mr. Daniel Song, over there on the other side of the country from you. Who I don't know how many millions of followers he has on TikTok, but I don't, I don't know if there's a point for any point. other insurance person to even be on TikTok because you're just yeah, the next Daniel I've, Song. Yeah, I don't even think there's a chance at this point for us. I don't even think we're chasing him. I would his, like to say that his we'll pick lead up his is so significant. Daniel, at some point, if you happen to hear this or see, I want you on the show because, my gosh, man, you are absolutely killing it in this game. Uh, what he's done on TikTok is what all of us should be striving for in our own social media and, and branding game. But I, I digress. I'm not going to compare myself to him, uh, and I'm not going to compare you to him. That's, that's a completely unfair and, and irrelevant comparison. Your game is very strong. I'd love to hear kind of your thought process, your rationale for for the way that you craft your social media persona. And then next, I want to get into the weeds a little bit of how you're managing your time because it seems like you are everywhere, my friend. So go ahead and hit first the first of all, one. I really appreciate it. Uh, this is when uh, imposter syndrome really hits me hard. So uh, I'll, I'll answer as best as I can because I'm not as great as you said I am. So I really, really appreciate it. I'm humbled by even... Even those accolades. Yeah. Um, I made a decision. It's now close to two years ago or a year and a half ago, but it really picked up a year ago. 
that I couldn't find downside risk in appropriate social media. So I see tremendous upside. I look around and you mentioned Daniel Song, who is a friend and mentor and colleague of mine, as he is yours. Um, but other than him, if you take his TikTok out, there's really very few PNC agents that have hit uh, real strides on social. So you have a couple of life insurance and financial planner people who uh, have above 50,000 followers or above, above 100,000 followers on, let's say, Instagram or LinkedIn. Uh, they're, as far as I can tell, and I've been looking for them, there's no PNC agent with 75,000 or more. And I think there's one with 50. Um, so not a lot of people are doing it. And I think that it's because it takes a certain uh, measure of consistency, which I'm sure we'll get into. Mm-hmm. But I, I just, I said to myself, there's very little downside risk. I, I trust in myself that I'm not going to do something really stupid um, on social media. And I made a commitment not to discuss certain topics. Not that I'm not passionate about them, but you'll never uh, see me or hear me on social say anything political. It's just yep. not worth it. I, yep. I'm not in for that. Um, and I realized that content and what I'll call the content cachet also had no downside risk. So if I put those two things together, I'd say if I'm creating the content, even if the social media thing doesn't work, if for some reason newsletters become a thing again, then I've just created in video or audio form 150 newsletters, which I could then put out again over time. Yeah. If blogs become a thing uh, for very cheap through Fiverr, I don't know all the companies, but all those you know companies that you can hire people overseas or even locally, I could say here I need all my audio that's on Instagram transcribed. So then I'm getting, or podcasts that I've been on transcribed. So I'm getting hundreds of pages of blog posts and things like that and no downside risk. Yep. Uh, the downside risk was financial because I knew I couldn't do it myself. So I had to invest some dollars in working with people who could help me. Um, but it wasn't really steep. And I work with uh, I work with someone in the insurance industry, uh, Plimsoll Media, which is Bradley Flowers' company. So I'm sure we'll get into that. But they mm-hmm. happen to do my uh, media. I worked with a great company before called Fika, um, who are in New York. And the only reason why I t- transferred over my work is because I needed someone who knew a lot about insurance because I knew that the one thing I didn't have time for is insurance-ease talk. Yeah. So I needed to just make sure that that kind of stuff was a little bit on point, not that they were doing any bad things. Um, and it's crazy that we're talking about this today because I don't know when this is going to air, but uh, the reel that I posted two days ago on Instagram, so that would be on March the 14th, 2022, mm-hmm. Uh, has 11,600 views. Hmm. Now that makes absolutely no sense. Uh, my media people can't explain how it happened. I can't explain how it happened. I don't get it. I don't understand social media at all. But I'm getting 2,000 plus views. And when you're in a business like yours and mine, and I think that this is a very important thing if you're going to get into social media, get into it, that a person has to put a hard line in the sand we are not in the click-to-buy business. So the way you measure ROI is going to be very difficult Hmm. because if you're not selling an item or a service, it's hard to say, James saw my post, he clicked on it, he bought a microphone or a headset for me, right? It's very hard. It's not linear. And in fact, I would argue that those people who would do such a thing, you and I are not really interested in doing business with. Right, because if they're willing to buy from some guy on Instagram and not have a conversation and not take that trusted advice, yeah, then they're not. Then they're they're going to leave client. just as quickly. But 
what I have found is I don't talk to anyone who hasn't seen it. Anyone. So I can't imagine what it's like on the prospect when I reach out to someone and they tell their CFO, hey, you know, here's Aaron Gordon or we're on a call. I imagine that they're Googling us. Yeah. I imagine that they're looking at our website and I imagine that they're seeing the social presence. And then I imagine that they're saying this is a legit company because of the social presence. Yep. But I haven't been able to say if I didn't have the presence, I would not have gotten this account because that's really hard to quantify. But I'm not into for that. So. Now, and my first off, your episode is going to air on April the 8th. Um, you are, I believe you're episode 49. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's where it falls because I have the next three that already ready to go. I've finally got myself three or four weeks out on average. For the longest time, I was literally like a week at a time. I'm going to play that number. And uh, I'm going to play that number. <laughs> yeah. 49. April the 8th, I think, is when your episode is dropping. That's a Friday morning, my friend. Um, you know, my my first thought is I hear Carruthers in my ear or Chris Green or uh, Ryan Hanley, who's in the middle of transitioning to HubSpot. And I hear him say, Au contraire, my friend, you can track everything. You can put that uh, that tracking code on every single page on your website. Uh, every link can have a unique ID embedded in it. So you know exactly where someone came from. And then once they're on your website, you can track how long they're there, which pages they view, which links they click on, and, and basically sure. build a profile. And I'm not currently doing any of those things because I'm not that sophisticated yet, but I know that's out there. Right. So let me, let me, let me maybe get a little more granular because you're right. What I mean to say is it's hard to, if someone refers you to me, yeah, it's hard to say whether I would have called you if you had a presence or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What I know is that by having the presence, you went to my website. Yeah. It's just hard to track. You can't track people who didn't visit your website. Oh, yeah. Or people who a referral source gave two referrals to. Why did they choose me over the other guy? Mm. I'll never know. And the other guy will never know. I just know they went to my website and then called me. Yeah. And I should clarify, I definitely wasn't correcting you. I was just yeah. reflecting on the fact that that stuff does exist. I just haven't been able to take advantage of it yet because I'm not that sophisticated uh, at this point. You know, a year or two me from neither. now. And by the way, you don't have to be, right? Yeah. I don't know. There's a lot of power in knowing what's working. And I think that's really, if you peel back the layers, if you ask Carruthers, if you ask Chris Green, if you ask others that are doing that same level of detail, the main value is you get a better pulse of what is resonating with your audience so you know what to do more of and what to do less of. You know, if there's a certain kind of content or you discover that, you know, short form is everything and long form is out right now, that, you know, your best engagement, your best conversion comes from a certain kind of content, you're going to be pivoting very quickly and doing a whole bunch of that kind of content and letting other stuff fall by the wayside. So uh, I, I definitely see the the benefit. I just am not spending any effort on that sort of stuff yet. And it doesn't sound like you are either, but you're having pretty fantastic success, it looks like. Yeah. So what I would say, first of all, I respect Carruthers and Chris Green and Hanley more than I can even describe in words because they're really, my, they're really are truly really inspirational in this industry. What I think you're hitting on correctly is if you're willing to put in a lot of effort, a lot of resources and have that type of personality where you can zero in, I think that it's beneficial. I'm not saying that it's not beneficial. Yeah. I'm just saying, even if you just do what some would call the bare minimum, you can see success. Yep. 
And that success, that entry-level success is very hard to track because unless you're going to put in the infrastructure, which means that you're heavily invested in it, it's going to be hard for you to track it. Mm-hmm. But, I, but I, I can't tell you the last time I had an interaction with someone in business where they didn't mention it. I mean, I went to speak in my high school last week. And a couple of people said, hey, uh, yeah, I saw my father that was up on his feet or something. Or he asked me, what is this video? Or I have these funny looking shoes. And he was interested in that or asked me how to download the app that I mentioned or things like that. So I think that there's a lot of, it's crazy what's going on. And I didn't think it was going to be like that. But Hmm. I'm building a cachet for myself, for my business, for my children. Um, I'm trying to get my dad on a little bit because I think it would be really clever for uh, for our business and also for my children and for their children. but you got to be willing to pivot to your second question. You got to be willing to be consistent. So it's highly uncomfortable. Uh, as you can probably tell in this conversation, I'm really comfortable talking to people. And that's mm-hmm. why I think you and I are hitting it off. Even as you mentioned, this is our first conversation. Uh, that's what I love doing. But talking to a camera is super unnatural. Uh, the best piece of advice that I got or that I feel is the truth is it used to be creepy for people to walk down the street, especially in New York, and talk to themselves. Now everybody does it anyway with AirPods. And there's selfie sticks and videos everywhere. So I get some stares sometimes. But if you're authentic and you do you, it'll come through. Mm. You just have to be super consistent. So I have to produce uh, or create 20 pieces of content a week to get five pieces of content. And then that goes out to editing. And then that gets the five pieces of content one a day for five days. And the reason why I try to do anywhere between 10 and 20 is what about the weeks when I'm on vacation? I can't lose viewership. What about when there's a Jewish holiday and I'm offline for a day or two? So what if I just don't have a piece of content? What if I have to deal with some of my family? What if I have to deal with any of those things? I have to be able to still keep it going. So I try to put it out. Uh, my office is decked out with cameras. My kids think it's weird. I'm always taking pictures and videos. I've converted from a business that was unknown to... I always wear a hat or a vest or a jacket with the logo on it so that people will know who I am and what I'm doing, even if I don't talk about insurance. Yep. And I'm trying. At least I'm trying. I don't know if it's going to work, but I'm trying. Hmm. Now, perhaps this is uh, impolite or, or some sort of improper. Uh, the intersection of faith and business. You know, in a lot of different faith cultures, it's kind of taboo to discuss business in, in a faith circle, a faith community. The people that I know that are, are good Jews, that are practicing Jews, uh, it seems like in that faith community, there's a whole lot more openness to the intersection of, of business uh, and, and religious faith. Uh, has that been your experience where you know, in, in your faith circle, you're able to have those interactions? Because I'm not personally of the Jewish faith, but I have a, a number of people in my social circle that are and it seems like there's more freedom uh, to interact in those ways where a lot of other uh, religious faiths, there's definitely a certain stigma of, hey, don't mix faith and business. Let's not go there. Uh, what's been your experience you know, expressing your, your faith and your business in an interconnected way? So first of all, I really appreciate the question. It's not offline or it's not out of line. Or I always want to be I, really I, sensitive I when I talk about something that's no. deeply personal like that. So, so it is deeply personal, but it's also deeply professional in that um, and I, I, I can't speak about or, or to any other religions or faiths because I've never practiced any other religion. Um, but what I can say is, it's interesting you say that, one of the things that my father brought me up on is that I don't sell any of my friends. 
Uh, it's really rare for me to pitch friends or people in my community. Yeah. However, one of the things that he told me, another thing that he was right about 12 years ago that I was wrong about because I told him he was, it wasn't true, is most of them come around. Right? Yeah. So one of the things that I can say about the Jewish faith is, uh, which is what I one of the things that I love about it, is that my faith governs my actions and thoughts and motives and motivations 24 hours a day seven days a week, 365 days a year. And so what that means is that my community is heavily invested in each other. So yeah. a lot of what I, based on what you're saying and what I've heard, again, I'm not, if this comes out wrong, it's not meant in any disrespectful way to any other religious mm-hmm. community, yeah. but we spend a lot of time religiously together. So I go to, I go to synagogue or temple three times a day. And in order to pray, you have to have a quorum of 10 men present. So that means that these people that I see every single night, and then I have a study partner in a synagogue, in a study hall. So I see these people multiple days, and there's more study partners, and there's more classes, and we have communal meals, and we have holidays, and we have the Sabbath, and our kids go to school together. So the opportunity for your business life to cross over to your religious and communal life is always present, which means that you're able to do business with those people who you know are like-minded. Not everyone, right? You're gonna in every in every uh, community. There's different strokes and different folks, and not everyone will click. Mm-hmm. But and then I'll say, being the insurance guy, everybody needs me. Yeah, I'm the only I'm the only service provider vendor professional in the room that everybody needs every single day. So. The real estate lawyer, maybe you buy a property in your life, maybe you don't. Maybe he only does commercial and you will never buy a commercial property in your life. The accountant, you could theoretically do your insurance on TurboTax, but in the end of the day, they may or may not be able to work with everyone because their products and service offerings may not be for everyone. The rabbi, your child may not be in their school or they may not teach that class that you can attend. The There's someone, one of my close friends is in the paint and varnish business, a very successful family business. I may or may not ever need to consume on the commercial side paint like that and purchase it and procure it. But all those people need insurance, the accountant, the lawyer, the guy who owns the paint store, the teacher, the life insurance actuary, all those people need me. And that's not that's not an ego thing, but it's it should be inspirational to those freedom jumpers, as you said, or because those people, they, people will come around. People need you. Your neighbor needs you. And it might not happen the first day. And I will say it probably won't happen if you're too salesy. Yep. But like by just being there, guy gets into a car accident. He sees you in synagogue, asks you a question. His wife has a question about their health insurance or the benefits at her new job. She calls you. They're buying a new house. He buys a new ring, right? Even if they just ask you a question. So the, the intersection between the Jewish faith and professional uh, professional operations or business is it's ever present because you know I wear I'll take off my hat for a minute but I wear I wear a yarmulke on my head mm-hmm. uh, all the time so I'm working I'm a working Jew right so yeah and what no. I will say the other thing is about religion is I think it's overrated that people negatively care about different religions uh, maybe I'm wrong but. Uh, I've had very, very, very few anti-Semitic interactions in my life. So I'm not saying it's not there, but like 
the average person, if you're good to them, they'll be good to you. And I find that people of faith, whether it's the same religion or different, that's a usually a, something that people respect or understand or just believe. So, Well, I mean, when you take a look, and this definitely is a, a controversial statement, but I think it's supported by historical fact. There is no people group on the face of planet Earth that is more historically oppressed and the victim of various forms of awful, terrible behavior over the entirety of human history than the the Hebrew and Jewish faith, uh, the people that are like of, of that race, of that ethnicity. I mean, you can go back literally historically documented out in biblical text and extra biblical going back thousands and thousands of years, uh, systematic oppression on a scale that no other people group can say, like the entirety of the population. Obviously, you know, you start talking about uh, African slavery and other things. That's way outside the context of this podcast. But, you know, anti-Semitism at this point, gosh, it just makes absolutely no sense to me. Like, of all the people that you could potentially say something horrible to, really? You're going to say something anti-Semitic to a people group that has been oppressed more than any other in the history of the world? Like, get over yourself. I think 100%. And I, first of all, I couldn't have said it better myself, so I appreciate the sentiment. But, you know, I am a... My mother was born in a displaced persons camp in Trani, Italy, uh, right after the Holocaust. Mm. Um, my mother had no first cousins, or I should say had very few first cousins for that reason. Uh, both of my grandparents came from very large families, and each one of them had only one sibling to survive. But uh, it's part of what inspires my hustle, right? And I think that one of the things that I was worried about being on social was that I would get some of that stuff. And I, I don't put my kids up there for for reasons because I just want to protect them, obviously. And if it yeah. ever does blow up one day, uh, that would be pretty amazing. But um, I, I think that if you have enough confidence and faith in your faith yeah. and you realize that you're trying to just do well by doing good, which, which we try to do good, we try to help people and we try to be good people. That doesn't mean that every single person that I interact with thinks that Aaron Gordon is the greatest and nicest person in the world. Yeah, uh, I'm a New Yorker through and through, so my personality rubs some people the wrong way, but that's okay. Yeah. Um, and so, and that's not meant in a, you know in a disrespectful way. It's just, but in the end of the day, as you said, uh, any oppression or any uh, anti anything in yeah. this world, there's no place for it anymore, and no. people are realizing it. Uh, it's unfortunate for my people, as you said, that it took thousands of years for that to be a thing. But now that it's a thing, if you believe that there shouldn't be racism, then there shouldn't be anti-Semitism. If you believe that every person should be able to choose who they want to marry and how they want to marry them and how they want to practice, then there's no place for for disrespecting anyone or anything, whether it's religion, gender, yeah. uh, or any other decision. So, Well, the, the, the thing that I keep going back to, and this is something that I have made part of my personal you know, beliefs in a professional context, is literally every person deserves and needs great insurance advice and solutions. And you can put any demographic you want in there, old, young, rich, poor, black, white, rainbow colored for all I care. It, it doesn't matter where you come from, who you are, who your parents were, who you love, who you identify as. Every single human being, every business from everywhere deserves and has a need for quality insurance relationship. So any, anytime someone's drawing a line in the sand or saying or doing something on social that is discriminatory or, you know, in some way unkind, 
I really just question the motivation in that situation. It's like, that's just not the time and place for that opinion. And, I'll, and by the way, it's probably bad that. for business. That's the other thing, right? I mean, it's, it's bad the, for business. You know, so many people feel free to you know, view, you know, espouse their political beliefs in a strongly worded fashion on social. And I'm sitting here going, yes, I do trend conservative and libertarian in a lot of ways, a lot of issues. You know, that's irrelevant, though, because I'm not going to air that out on social. Uh, I used to and I've gone and deleted a lot of things that I used to put out there because, at, you know, past time I thought it was OK. It is definitely bad for business because, you know, talking with my dad, uh, who is unapologetically very conservative, and we can have that conversation and I'll end it with saying, you know what, dad, Democrats need great insurance too. You know, people that watch a different news source than you do deserve great insurance too. You know, whatever the people group or the demographic or, or whatever it happens to be, I just don't understand when people like you and I make those kind of comments or those kind of ideological stands on social. And the other side of the argument, obviously, is, well, I'm going to be who I'm going to be and I want to attract people that think like I do. And I'm thinking, okay, well, how do you ever expand your perspective and seek to understand someone who believes differently than you do and thus have a better appreciation for the human condition if you're not engaging with people that think and believe differently and live differently than you do? So I, I know that is, well, I can hear my wife saying, get back to on topic. You're straying from <laughs> the topic. Stop it. This is an insurance podcast. But I, I really think that's an important way probably for us to end this because we just crossed over an hour of recording. Um, I think that's a great way to end. You and a, a good Jew and me, someone who's trying to be a, a good Christian uh, in two completely different parts of the country uh, can agree on definitely that, that everybody deserves to have a, a great uh, and an unbiased uh, insurance relationship. And, and everybody deserves to do well as long as they're doing good. You know, that's a good point. You can say that again. Everybody deserves to do well as long as they're doing good. So my dad likes to say that if we had a slogan, it would be doing well by doing good. We try to do good. And therefore, hmm. we've been rewarded mostly with doing well. Um, I just don't think that people who do bad or don't do good necessarily they might they might do well but they don't deserve it but i think that everyone everyone who does good deserves to do well and our industry is ripe for that that's the uh that's the title of your episode right there aaron gordon on doing well by doing good there you go you just gave me the title right there at the very end hey as we land the plane aaron is there anything you want to bring up did we miss anything you want to cover i just want to say thanks again for having me um and if anyone wants to reach me NY risk advisor uh for all those freedom jumpers and everyone else who's out there just keep at it keep hustling and uh if you're listening to great people like james then you'll definitely uh succeed and get ahead and our industry has a lot to look forward to a lot awesome man this has been great i've really enjoyed the conversation thank you for being so authentic and sharing from your heart i really appreciate that it makes for a great interview and uh folks that is it uh, for this episode of the agency freedom podcast y'all make it a great day we'll talk to you again real soon thanks Thanks for listening to the Agency Freedom Podcast. Please subscribe to AFP on your favorite podcasting platform to get automatic updates on every new episode and help other people find us organically. If you like the content you hear, please drop us a quick review and tell the world what you like best. Most importantly, please share Agency Freedom with someone you know who is still on the captive side of the insurance world. 
they'll thank you later. You can connect with other Freedom Jumpers, ask questions, get advice, and share your best practices in our Facebook group. Just type Agency Freedom Podcast in the search bar. Visit our website at agencyfreedompodcast.com to sign up for our email list and get access to exclusive resources and sign up to be a potential future guest on the show. We welcome your comments, feedback, and ideas. Email podcast at riskwell.com and we'll look forward to hearing from you. Agency Freedom Podcast, where we help our listeners go from captive to indie to market domination. Until next time, let's go. Hey, agents, listen to this. Listen to this. What are we terrible at? Think of it. Think of it. Really? We're, we're terrible at training, right? We're not very good at hiring. We're not very good, terrible at firing, actually. Uh, terrible at creating process and some workflows. Terrible at technology and implementing that technology and even knowing what type of technology we want. And the list goes on and on. Now, listen, I'm an agency owner. And I, you know how it is to, to fix a problem. The first thing you've got to do is you've got to admit you have a problem. Here's what you do. Go to virtualintel.com. Check out what we do because we do all those bad things that you can't do. Really? And you may do one or two of them well. Good for you if you can do them all. Just want you to know you're in the minority. But if you can't do any of them good or you don't even want to do them anymore because it just takes too much mental power, then good for you for realizing that and give us a call. I'm telling you, virtual intelligence, that's what we do. And where we specialize in high quality VEs, not virtual assistants. Look it up. Go to ChatGPT. Put in what's the difference between a virtual assistant and a virtual employee. Enough said. I don't have enough time to go on and on about all the differences on this 60 second commercial. But you've got time to search it and look at it. That's what we do. We deliver high quality VEs. We mix the technology with it. We train them on the technology, give them and the technology to you and you're off to the races. I'm not joking with you. You can call my agency at any time, ask for Lordland. And we do ask her, say, how fast are you able to do quotes? I've actually got a couple videos of it. That's right. We can do five to 10 carriers in one quote in three to seven minutes. So you give me an auto quote, I can do five to 10 carriers in three to seven minutes. How are we doing it? We're doing it through the technology of virtual intelligence. Give us a call, check us out. You can ask for me personally, I'll do the demo for you. Who are they? Cast certified.